The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God shall stand forever. That word I announce to you today. Let the church of Jesus Christ say. Amen. Have you ever walked into a room and discovered an argument underway? Come on, church. <laughs> Think about a time at your workplace uh, where you stumbled into a room and saw a group of people tensely discussing this issue or that issue, or think about your last family get-together or a holiday gathering or sometime when you stepped out just to get a drink and you came back to find Aunt Karen and Cousin Laura rehashing an old unresolved conflict. Whatever situation you're thinking of, the argument was started before you, were, while you were out of the room, you're not sure who said what to whom in what tone, but by the time you enter, the two parties are either yelling at each other or worse, just sort of seething silently at each other with the vehemence of a soon-to-erupt volcano. What happened? You ask a bystander, what's going on? And if your family is like mine, you know that in time, you are going to be dragged into the conflict in one way or another. Because in large family gatherings like mine, an argument between two people becomes an argument between anybody and everybody else who thinks that their opinion will win the fight or end the conflict. There are no neutral parties in some family systems. But back to you, standing in the doorway to the dining room, watching the stare down between two arguing parties. And since you know that you are going to need to have an opinion about this argument, you need to know what's happened already, to whom, by whom, and when. Who said what? Why did he say it? What tone did he have when he said it? And so forth. In hearing today's gospel lesson, we find ourselves standing in the doorway to the kitchen, staring into a room that is filled with tension, Except that we're not in a house, we're in the courtyard of the temple in Jerusalem. And this isn't a family argument, it's a religious argument. Today we are listening from the doorway to an argument between Jesus and some leaders of his own religious tradition. And since this argument might affect us, and we might have to have an opinion in this argument, we better figure out who said what to whom and why. And the best way to figure out the context of today's argument is to back up and figure out what led to it in the first place. Today's gospel lesson is taken from the 21st chapter of Matthew. Matthew 21 begins with Jesus' grand parade-esque entrance into the city of Jerusalem. Him riding on the back of a donkey. The crowds preparing away, announcing his arrival like you might do for a king. Students of the Old Testament will remember that Zechariah said the Messiah, the person whom God would choose to reform and lead his chosen people, would come riding to Jerusalem humbly, not on a horse, but on a donkey. And here is Jesus on a donkey. And the whole city, Matthew tells us, is in turmoil. People are demanding to know who is that riding in on a donkey. And the crowds are saying, this is the prophet, Jesus of Nazareth. And so Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth, rides his donkey right up to the temple, walks through the colonnades and into the court of Gentiles, a large open-air area adjacent to the temple, crowded 
at this time of the year by thousands of people. It's the time just before Passover and everybody's arriving and getting what they need for the festival celebrations. If you've ever been down to the big house, sorry Spartan fans, if you've ever been down to the big house for a sold-out game, you know what a large crowd is like. The crowds outside the actual seating area can be massive, long lines stretching out from food and apparel vendors and restrooms. In the temple courts, the crowds are flocking to priests for instructions in what animal they need to buy for that week's sacrifice and how they can get their regional currency exchanged into temple currency. Long lines stretching out from animal vendors and money exchange booths. And Jesus, stepping into this scene right after he enters Jerusalem, goes from vendor to vendor and flips over their tables, chasing them out of the courtyards, upset, angry even, at the perversion of worship into the buying and selling of things that need to be bought or sold. And Jesus quotes scripture as he does, saying, my house shall be called a house of prayer, he tells these people, not a place where people rob, steal, and extort. And then Jesus leaves. The next day, he comes back to the temple And upon entering the gates, he's immediately confronted by the chief priests and elders. And that is where today's gospel text begins. There is still tension in the air from the day before. Jesus is now being confronted by the leaders and representatives of the people. And it's going to turn into something of an argument. And their issue, their concern is uh, is centered around two questions. Number one, By what authority was Jesus doing these things? Like, who told him he could go into the temple and flip over the tables? Who, where's, show me your seminary degree, Jesus. Who authorized you to do this? We don't know you. And then secondly, who gave this authority to Jesus? Jesus? Their questions they're asking are all about validation. How did Jesus justify his prophetic table-turning work? They, They weren't opposed necessarily to the thing he did, but they didn't know who granted him permission or who authorized Jesus to be a heaven sent prophet. Like, where's his rabbi prophet credentials? And remember, the temple leaders and the local elders, they don't know Jesus at all. Like, this is the first time some of them have even seen him. They don't know anything about him except that he's been ushered into the city in like this royal procession and there's crowds that are on his side and he storms through the temple clearing out the shop owners and they just want to know more about him. Who licensed him? Who gave him authority? And by way of a response to them, Jesus tells them three parables of which our gospel reading today is the first. And Jesus, being the clever, clever debater that he is, pulls a quick rhetorical trick that Socrates would have been proud of had he not been dead for 400 years by this point. He says, look, I've got one question for you, Jesus says, and if you answer me, I'll answer your questions. And here's his question. Jesus says, do you remember John the baptizer? A few years ago, he was baptizing people in the river. Was his baptism authorized by God? Like, did it come from heaven? 
Or was it just a human act? Was it just of human origin? Fascinating to me and curious. When asked about his authority to act on God's behalf, why did Jesus ask a question about John's baptism? I mean, it had been three years since John had been thrown in prison and executed. So, like, why even bring up John's baptism at all? Haven't people moved on from John the baptizer? And does it really matter whether John's baptism was authorized by God or whether it was a human act? Well, the answer is yes, especially for Jesus. I think this is an especially clever question to ask the religious leaders because if you remember the timeline of Jesus' life in Matthew's gospel, long before Jesus calls disciples and heals the sick and teaches the Sermon on the Mount, for example, Jesus goes out to the Jordan and he receives John's baptism. And it was at that baptism that the heavens open up God's spirit falls upon Jesus. God's voice speaks to Jesus and publicly authorizes him as God's beloved son with whom God is well pleased. It was John's baptism of Jesus in the Jordan that functioned as the key authorizing moment for Jesus. A moment where Jesus is filled with the spirit and authorized by God's voice to be God's resident agent among humanity. So about that baptism, Jesus asks them slyly, was that a God thing or a John thing? And what Jesus doesn't tell them is that by asking them about John's baptism, he's already told them where he got his authority. But he lets them stew a bit and come up with their own answer. So they huddle together and they make what will be a political calculation. Well, we can't say it's from God because they'll ask us why we didn't believe John's message. We are, after all, religious people. We should believe things of God, right? Okay. But we can't say that it was a human thing either because the crowds might rise up against us since they thought John was a prophet. So they say to Jesus, shrug emoji. We don't know. And Jesus says, well, I'm not answering your questions either. But Jesus isn't finished. He goes on to tell one of the most straightforward easy to answer parable riddles. He says, what do you think? A man had two sons. He says to the first, go and work in the vineyard today. The son says, thanks dad, but nope. He later changes his mind and goes and works in the vineyard. The man goes to the other son and says, go and work in the vineyard today. And he says, yes sir, you know I will, but does not go at all. And Jesus simply asks, who did it? Who did the will of his father? And they answer, with the only possible right answer, the first son, the guy who initially said, no way, but changes his mind and goes. The son's words were faulty, but his action was good. Why? Because the will of the father was not proper speech, but proper action. The father did not want his son to just say the right words or even to use a reverent language like sir. The father wanted his son to go and work in the vineyard. The, the, that was the will of the father, and that is what the first son did, even though his initial verbal response was rude and awful. Importantly, the first son changed his mind. He later thought about his father's call to work in the vineyard and decided to go and do it. And so they answered Jesus. They say the first one. And Jesus 
doesn't say, well done, you guys, you got it, you're on your way. Instead, he says, yeah, but listen, you religious leaders are more like the second son, okay? He says, John the baptizer came with authority, and his preaching was like the father's instruction to go and work in the vineyard. Jesus, and I'm paraphrasing here, essentially is saying, you've all been busy saying the right things and using the proper reverent speech. You've been polishing your creeds and dusting off your doctrines. You've got all the right words in your mouths, but you have refused to change in light of what God has done. You have refused to do the will of God. You have heard the invitation to repent, to change your hearts, to reorder your lives around God's kingdom, and you've said out loud, yes, sir, I will, but you haven't changed one bit. Meanwhile, Jesus says, the tax collectors and prostitutes, first sons though they may be, though their initial actions were awful and debased, they heard the preaching of John. They heard the voice of God calling them to change their minds and lives, and they did. They considered the invitation to work in the vineyard, and they decided to turn their lives around and do what God was calling them to do. And Jesus tells them the tax collectors and the prostitutes are going into God's kingdom ahead of you. Why? Because in their actions of repentance and change, they did the will of the Lord. Church, what are we going to do about this parable, especially in light of our current focus on the kingdom of God? I mean, how are we to make sense of today's argument between Jesus and the religious leaders of Jerusalem about spiritual authority? This might be a simplistic take on the parable, but I think Jesus is making a similar point here that he already made earlier in Matthew's gospel, way back in Matthew chapter 7, at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, a sermon that is instructing disciples about what life in the Jesus community looks like. And at the very end, Jesus tells them a parable of two builders who each built a house on different foundations. One built theirs on sand, the other on rock. Both houses looked great, But when the storm came, it washed out the house built on sand, while the one on rock endured intact. And Jesus says, people who hear my word only build a house on sand. But people who hear my word and do what it says build a house upon a firm foundation. For Jesus, there is an essential unity between hearing God's word and then doing what that word commands. The tax collectors and the prostitutes, the first sons in today's parable, those who heard the word of God preached by John and who did what that word commanded, even though their starting place was shameful and problematic, had nonetheless done the will of the Father and had built a house upon rocky foundation. Hearing and doing, not saying not confessing, not using words, but actions, doing, living out, changing. What we do in response to hearing God's command to go and work in the vineyard will mark us as either a first or a second son in the parable. Church, today we hear anew the call of God to go and work 
in the vineyard to go and do the work of God's kingdom, to go and feed the hungry, to clothe the naked, to sit with the suffering, to tend to the sick, to visit the prisoners, to love our neighbors, to forgive our enemies, to give our money away, and so forth, and to say, yes, sir, I go, sir, but only to do none of the above is to be guilty of being a second son. All words, no actions, sandy soil, problematic foundation. But to say, no, I don't think I can do that, and then to change your mind, to, to let that soak your spirit and soften you, to, to begin doing those things first, long before your words catch up to you, is to be a first son whose actions speak a better word than mere verbs. Church, we've been called to go and labor in a kingdom vineyard in the backyard of the Almighty. And as a community of Jesus followers here at First Pres, we strive to be a people who put actions behind all our words and who trust that what we do is often a better testimony of our belief and faith than all the words we can muster. We want to be a church who take the opportunities we have in our work, in our neighborhoods, in our families to practice the will of God, to practice the way of God's kingdom now, to embody an attitude of listening to God's word deeply, and then spending a week changing and praying and humbly reconsidering and then doing what that word says in our lives. Church, may we, you and me both, be that sort of people today, this week, and each year of our lives. I speak to you in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let the church of Jesus Christ say, amen.
church, let us affirm our faith by using these words. When we pray thy kingdom come, we express our desire for God to govern us by his word and spirit so that we learn more and more to submit to God's will for this world. When we pray, thy kingdom come, we express the soul's longing for all evil, oppression, and injustice to be destroyed. When we pray, thy kingdom come, we express our expectation not only for that glorious day of Christ in the future, but also for the arrival of the kingdom today, even right now, among us and around us. Church, we have been called to present ourselves to the Lord as living sacrifices. And that includes not only our money, our resources, it also includes our whole heart and life. So church, today, as the ushers come to receive our offering, may what we put in the plate be a symbol of our giving to God ourselves for his purposes this week. Please, will the ushers come and please be seated as the choir presents their offering. 